0: Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Number seventy sixty, the case for Doctor Who season seven, the season seven from nineteen seventy, that is.
1: Welcome to Retrogram, the logbook.com's retro TV podcast covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, superhero, and spy-fi shows that aired between the beginning of nineteen seventy and the end of nineteen ninety. This time around, we're introducing a new feature to the show, the Case 4. From time to time, I'll pick out a, sometimes a much maligned or just underappreciated series, or a season of a series, if it actually lasted more than one season, or maybe just one particular episode that people have spent decades crapping on. I'm not a big proponent of received fan wisdom. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, Spock's brain is the worst episode of Star Trek. It's not. Yeah, 1980s Doctor Who sucked. It didn't. No, Puck, it didn't. Well, okay, not always. That's right. Particularly with franchise shows like Doctor Who and Star Trek, when you have upward of 50 years of stories across different media to digest, received fan wisdom becomes a crutch and sometimes a helpful shortcut, but a lot of it is also just wrong. Received fan wisdom can rob people of their chance to make a discovery that they love something, or love some aspect of something. I really resent that part of it. Let people discover what they like. Tell them what there is to love about something, rather than what there is to dislike about something. So that's why I'm starting a feature on Retrogram to defend some of the stuff that we cover, and doing it in a way that's different from our usual pick-one-week-between-1970 and-1990 format. And since Retrogram's coverage of retro TV begins in January 1970, why not start with a season of an already popular show that was taking on a whole new style for this whole new decade? Ratings had been dropping toward the end of the 1968-69 season of Doctor Who, and the entire cast had made it known that they were ready to move on. Did the TARDIS have any life left in it? First, let's talk about the 1970 season of Doctor Who. This was the first season of the show to be filmed and broadcast in color. Producing the show was more expensive in color, so seasons were shortened from over 40 episodes a year to roughly 25-26 episodes per year. Now, I think the sheer number of episodes per year leads you directly to the answer to any questions you may have about why the entire cast was ready to leave at the end of Patrick Troughton's last season. Forty episodes a year took more than forty weeks a year to produce, so these people were exhausted. And they also probably did not have time to step outside the bounds of this job and do anything that wasn't Doctor Who-related. So, shortening the length of the season to 26 episodes, 26 weeks out of the year? That's still half of the year. 26 is half of 52. There are 52 weeks in a year. Uh, That's still a pretty good chunk of time for production. The shift from black and white to color was the biggest production paradigm shift until the 2009 David Tennant specials suddenly went to HD for the first time. And I think you notice that uh, starting with Matt Smith's seasons and then gradually into Peter Capaldi's seasons and then into Jodie Whitaker's seasons, you see where there is a similar reduction in the number of episodes per season like there was when Doctor Who went from black and white to color. A change of producer was underway. Now, Derek Sherwin was the producer of Patrick Troughton's final season in Black and White, and he was still in charge for Spearhead from Space. It became something of a tradition for the outgoing producer to tackle the first episode of a new season that otherwise was going to be produced by his successor, so his successor could kind of shadow him as he, you know, went through the tasks necessary to make the show. Terrence Dix, whose name you probably know very well if you were even remotely interested in the Target Books novelizations of Doctor Who stories in the 1970s and 80s, he was the script editor toward the end of Patrick Troughton's reign, and he remained as script editor going into John Pertwee's era. Barry Letts arrived as the producer as of part one of Doctor Who and the Silurians, and the show was suddenly much more mature which is interesting given how we came to have john pertwee as the doctor in the first place john pertwee was best known for the navy lark and other comedy material and he was selected for the part of the doctor because it was assumed due to his navy lark experience and popularity that he was the most natural successor to the whimsy that patrick trouton's doctor brought to the series. In the end, John Pertwee ended up taking a very different and far more dramatic approach to the character of the Doctor. The 1970 season is really where the era of Unit properly begins. Lethbridge Stewart had been introduced as a colonel in the 1967 six-parter The Web of Fear. Unit first appeared in The Invasion in 1968, with Lethbridge Stewart now promoted to Brigadier, and placed in charge of UNIT, which at the time was, you know, in Doctor Who's fictional world, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. Uh, the modern series, interestingly, has renamed, it has reassigned UNIT's acronym. It is now um, I, what, the Unified Intelligence Task Force, it, because apparently there were some new broadcast regulations in place where you couldn't... Uh, fictionally ascribe something to the United Nations. Go figure. Now, Unit was invented by Derek Sherwin for the invasion, which was an eight-part Patrick Troughton story. So it was invented by the showrunner of Doctor Who while he was serving that function. And so Doctor Who has the use of Unit any time it likes. Now, interestingly, the character of Lethbridge Stewart was created by... Mervyn Haseman and Henry Lincoln for The Web of Fear in 1967. And so Lincoln and Haseman had to receive, uh, payments, royalty payments, every time the Brigadier showed up. And that includes, that includes his final appearance in an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures shortly before Nicholas Courtney died in the uh, 21st century. So even in the end credits of that Sarah Jane Adventures episode, Uh, Mervyn Haisman and Henry Lincoln get a credit on screen. Now, the purpose of the Doctor's exile to Earth, this was something that happened in Part 10 of the War Games, the final episode of Patrick Troughton's Doctor, in which the Time Lords um, decided that the Doctor had been interfering in history too much, and so they were going to exile him to Earth. They were going to break the TARDIS so he couldn't leave again and they were going to rob him of the knowledge to fix the TARDIS. And so he was going to be marooned on Earth, ostensibly because he took such an interest in the human race and its history, whether it was past or future. Now, the production reason for exiling the Doctor to Earth and giving him a job as unit's scientific advisor was to cut the show's spiraling production costs by keeping the show anchored to Earth. So what this meant was uh, futuristic locales would not have to be built. Um, futuristic vehicles and model work surely would not be required. <laughs> oh, they didn't even make it through the 1970 season with that idea. Um, the notion was that it would make the show cheaper and thus make it less of a target for anyone in the BBC who was looking for something really expensive to cancel. What didn't change were the writers. Terence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, Robert Holmes, David Whitaker, uh, Dudley Simpson, sort of the the in-house music composer. He had become the musical voice of Doctor Who over time. There were also several Troughton-era directors like Michael Ferguson who directed episodes in this first season in John Pertwee's era in 1970. The show still had its traditional 25-minute Saturday evening tea time slot. And so, there were more things that stayed the same in this change of era than things that really drastically changed. Some things, on the other hand, did change forever. Starting with the 1970s, companions have a life outside of the TARDIS, especially since the Doctor is stuck on Earth, and he's working for unit, and presumably, you know, he has to go somewhere, even if it's just stepping into the TARDIS. You know, the Doctor is not leaving Earth on the regular. He is stuck on Earth. He's trapped. And so the companions aren't going anywhere. They don't have a room in the TARDIS. They probably are paying rent somewhere they have a home to go to they have a life outside of the stories that we see in 1971 the character of the master was introduced to doctor who for the first time and that we'll we'll discuss the implications of that versus what we see in the 1970 season a little bit later because the master is very much emblematic of the next big doctor who paradigm shift The Time Lords were something of a constant presence, at least as far as being mentioned. Which is kind of funny, because the Time Lords were only invented in the war games. We never knew that the Doctor was a Time Lord until the last Patrick Troughton episode. We knew that he was not of this Earth because he had already changed his appearance once. But the backstory involving the Time Lords, and the fact that the Doctor stole a TARDIS and was breaking the laws of his people, all of that arrived out of whole cloth in that final Patrick Troughton story. And, of course, there seemed to be, you know, kind of an arms race throughout the 70s to make the show scarier. Spearhead from Space, parts 1 through 4. I'm going to let the retrogram computer read the story description from the files of the logbook.
0: Dr. Liz Shaw is uprooted from her research at Cambridge, to serve as the scientific advisor for the recently formed United Nations Intelligence Task Force, headed by Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. The brigadier seeks her help in the investigation of two mysteriously precise media showers, which could be signs of alien interference with Earth. The Brigadier's luck improves with the arrival of a police box in the midst of the most recent media shower, though its sole occupant is a man he's never seen before. The Doctor, however, recognizes the Brigadier, despite recovering from the trauma of his forced regeneration at the hands of the Time Lords. The two join forces, with a somewhat bewildered Doctor Shaw in tow, to fight an alien menace which can inhabit and control one of the most common substances manufactured on Earth. Plastic. Spearhead
1: from Space is really the outlier of the 1970 season of Doctor Who, precisely because Derek Sherwin was still the man responsible for making the show and setting its tone. In a lot of ways, there is a direct continuation in tone from Patrick Troughton's last season. The Doctor can be somewhat silly. Uh, Simpsons' music, Dudley Simpsons' music, is kind of silly. This one there's very there's very much a whimsical tone that harkens back to the late Troughton era. And of course the Brigadier is back. Some serious continuity is starting to happen there, and the Brigadier is competent. Now that's really that's something I'm going to touch on as we sort of wrap up this discussion, because as you get later into the seventies the Brigadier is not always as competent, and unit is not always as competent. As he appears here uh, here at the beginning of this story, uh, he's he's in charge, he's handling it, yes, he has a a problem of an otherworldly nature that he needs solved, and he is recruiting Liz Shaw to tackle that since the doctor has not shown his face yet now, this is where we get into a total break from the final season of Patrick Troughton's doctor, even though Liz Shaw is you know kind of on the young side. She is a professional. She is an adult. She has a doctorate. She is doing science things at Cambridge. Uh, she is apparently renowned in her field. And she's none too happy to have the Brigadier plucking her out of her academic life, you know, her academic and research oriented life, and trying to recruit her to do, you know, what she assumes is going to be uh, a lot of spy stuff. Now, once you get the Doctor and Liz Shaw together, I get a huge Mulder and Scully vibe from that pairing. And you gotta keep in mind, we are 23 years before the premiere of The X Files. And yet, I really, that really is the best description I can give for someone who is not familiar with the show, but may be familiar with later science fiction on TV is that there is very much a Mulder and Scully vibe with with of course you know the doctor being Mulder you know who does believe that there are things beyond human understanding and Liz being the skeptic you know basically being Scully and uh it, Liz and Scully both have red hair but that's kind of a superficial thing but you know it is another thing there is there is a l- huge basis for comparison in these character dynamics you had new enemies in this uh, first story, you had the Nestine Consciousness and their, you know, kind of their henchmen, the Autons, which, you know, anything made of plastic could be bent to the Nestine's will and forced to serve their evil schemes. Um, this was actually pretty scary, especially in 1970. They would really they'd really hammer this home uh, in 1971 when the Autons returned for the first time. Um... You know just how just the implications of how scary it was in a world that was increasingly making everything out of plastic, if the nestines can commandeer anything made of plastic, um they really have a leg up on the human race right there in any invasion attempt. There's a lot of stuff that you know despite this being sort of the last gasp of Derek Sherwin's whimsical vision of Doctor Who, there is a lot that works here. I really like the dynamic that the Doctor and Liz Shaw are both scientists, and, you know, on some level, they are equals. They speak the same language. The Doctor is not having to stop and explain everything to her. Now, apparently this became a big problem with Barry Letts as the incoming producer because it seemed incongruous to have this seasoned scientist like Liz asking questions of the Doctor, or or so that is the explanation that Barry Letts always gave for getting rid of the character after a single season. Now, I don't want to call Barry Letts a liar. He is a much-renowned, much-loved figure in the history of the makers of Doctor Who. But while Liz is a research scientist... The Doctor obviously knows stuff that is way beyond her. It would have been perfectly normal for her to be asking questions. She's a scientist. That's what scientists do. They try to come up with the answers to questions. And this really should have been the best possible pairing of Doctor and Companion here, but it wasn't given a chance. And, you know, another indication that Barry Letts... And not just Barry Letts, it really starts in this story under Derek Sherwin... You know, kind of an indication that the writers were already checking out on the character of Liz Shaw. Why did they spend the entire season calling her Miss Shaw? She's Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. She, you know, she's earned that title. She's, you know... uh, I I know it's easy and probably entirely accurate to ascribe this to standard issue 70s sexism... But I found that really irritating. That the moment the character is introduced, they seemed to they seemed to have checked out on her almost immediately. The brigadier and unit, like I said before, they're presented as competent. They know what they're doing. They uh, they're not overbearing or buffoonish. Nothing happens here as a result of unit screwing things up or you know being gung ho when they shouldn't be. Now, there is a, a regular army colonel who is uh, replaced by an Auton duplicate of himself. And, you know, so, oh, you know, I, I guess that makes the regular army look bad. Although, again, we are talking about something from beyond human understanding that the man probably had no power over, you know, it probably had no way to stop it from doing what it did to him spearhead from space is unusual in that the entire every scene in the entire four-part story it's all shot on film now the production reality of it is that there was a strike in the uh, in the area of studio employees at the bbc the uh, studio employees were on strike and so Uh, Derek Sherwin and Barry Letts opted to just get out of the studio and film the entire thing on location. Now, this is part of why you never see the TARDIS console in this story, but you do see it later in the season. Um, The TARDIS console was in the BBC scenery docks. The employees who would have had to pull the TARDIS console prop out and set it up were on strike. So, uh, you know, no, no TARDIS in this story, really. You have the the outer shell and that's it. The great thing about it being shot on film is that this is the first Doctor Who story that came out on Blu-ray. Because you could rescan the original film elements and you know rescan them at HD and it would look great. And it it looks so crisp and clean if you watch the b- Blu-ray. I mean it's it's like they just shot it yesterday. It it is it looks as slick as kind of your standard issue, late 60s, ITV, ITC shows such as The Prisoner and Department S, and so on. And there is something of a a verisimilitude that the shooting on film lends to it, which really brings us to the most shocking thing in Spearhead from Space. It's in part four, it's when the autons, the dummies, the shop window dummies, come to life... And, you know, break through the shop windows. And, you know, they have guns built into their hands which open up. And they just start killing lots of people. This was executed very well. You have to keep in mind, um, for this to have aired in January 1970, it had to have been filmed in 1969. And, you know, there's kind of a certain expectation of... I don't know if you'd want to call it cheapness or what, from BBC's output in 1969 and 70, but this was done really well, and it's genuinely unnerving. And there's very good reason that this whole thing is repeated almost shot for shot in the first Christopher Eccleston episode of Doctor Who in 2005, which also, that brought back the Autons for the first time since 1971, and, you know, it made them pretty damn scary there, too. The the silly and whimsical elements of the story that just kind of strain against it being taken seriously, thankfully, that tendency walks out the door with Derek Sherwin. And after this, for the rest of this season, we take things much more seriously. Doctor Who and the Silurians, parts 1 through 7. Once again, I will have the retrogram computer read from the record, from the files of the logbook.
0: Unit and the Doctor are summoned to a nuclear power research center located near a complex of caves. Something has been slowly driving members of the center's staff mad, one by one, and at least one Spelunker has been killed in the caves. The doctor investigates the caves for himself, uninterested in what initially seem like personnel problems at the nuclear power facility, and finds a living dinosaur inside them. He also discovers evidence of a biped reptile species both in the caves and outside. The center's director doesn't believe the story he's being told but the brigadier prepares unit to defend against a possible invasion. The doctor is convinced that the reptile humanoids are Silurians. The original inhabitants of the Earth before a mass extinction wiped out most of the large reptile species, and allowed humans to evolve and thrive. The few survivors of the event went into underground shelters, and the energy released by the research center's reactor is slowly awakening them. The doctor is determined to contact them and try to talk them into coexisting peacefully with humans on the surface only to find that warlike factions exist among the Silurians as well, and some of them will be satisfied with nothing less than wiping out humanity.
1: So, welcome to the Barry Letts era of Doctor Who. One of the things that Barry Letts very prominently brought to the show immediately is that this story is about something. You have a story about the displacing of indigenous people, and you also have to... uh, To a secondary degree, toward the end You have a story about military solutions Where none are needed So, you kind of You really have something That speaks to a Real world issue And it kind of speaks across the ages Because You have here You know, when you're talking about Displacing indigenous people And then they have to fight To try to reclaim even a fraction of what was theirs. You know, you have something that applies to the history of Native Americans. You have something that applies to the history of Aboriginal Australians. You have something that applies to the history of the Maori. It's an unfortunate running theme that you have uh, basically anywhere that you've got white Europeans involved. On a production level, Doctor Who and the Silurians, and, and... This was the only time that Doctor Who and Thee was part of an on-screen title in the original television series. It was a fairly common sight on the spines of those Target novelizations that I mentioned earlier, of which Terrence Dix wrote a great many of them. But this was the only time it ever happened on TV, and it's kind of odd. This story also sees the first use of... CSO, or Color Separation Overlay, what we Americans would call blue screen, green screen, or chroma key in Doctor Who. Which is, basically, at this point, it was it was very much in its early stages. It was being used as uh, part of television weather forecasts to put a map behind a weather person on TV but it was also quickly coming into use for programming of a more fantastic nature now the arrival of this technology this production technology in doctor who portends huge things for the future of the series coming right up to the current show now arguably it didn't always look very good i mean and and this goes right up to the very end of classic doctor who Uh, The CSO work, the chroma key work, didn't always look great because it was was very much an analog thing. It could be... and, And I've worked in TV before. Chroma key can be ruined by a change in lighting. It can be ruined by a lot of things. You have to do a lot of stuff to make chroma key work. And it is used extensively in modern Doctor Who, because you now have entire scenes and I'm you know I'm trying to think of some examples here like Matt Smith in the you know white void you know where the explosion from the heart of his tardis is beginning or you know David Tennant addressing this giant devil creature you're talking about stuff that was shot entirely against green screen but digital technology has made it a lot easier to Kind of smooth some of the rough edges of that production technique and make it integrate a bit more seamlessly and make it a bit more plausible uh, here you you know you had some serious fringing going on at the edges which was something that just dogged CSO chroma key or whatever you wanted to call it for many years and not just in terms of Doctor. Who. The scripts for Doctor Who and the Silurians were written by Malcolm Hulk. And Malcolm Hulk was a, uh, was a fairly, fairly complicated character. He had social issues he wanted to address. And he also had socialist leanings. But he had grave concerns about the environment and other issues. And under Barry Letts, Malcolm Hulk finally had a, a sort of a willing ally. Someone who would let him give full vent to his proclivity for addressing real-world issues. And it's kind of amazing how much of a shift there is in the characterization of the Doctor starting in this episode, because with the more serious scripts, you have John Pertwee's desire to play the Doctor as a more dramatic figure, and it's quite a revelation. This is nothing like Spearhead from Space. The Silurians are our fictional proxy for displaced indigenous people here. And they are enemies with a legitimate axe to grind rather than being, you know, maniacal invaders from somewhere else who are just sweeping in like a plague of locusts. They don't even... You know, a solution is proposed during the course of the story that the Silurians could very easily exist in the warmest parts of the Earth's environment, in places where humans would find it very difficult to exist, like the Sahara Desert. Um, which is a really interesting discussion because the Doctor really is trying to broker a peace. And this is a running theme. This goes right up to. This is something that is um, repeated, very much repeated, in the two part episode that really reintroduces the Silurians to Doctor Who during Matt Smith's era you know, a lot of these talking points are repeated, that there are large stretches of the earth where humans cannot live and cannot make anything grow that would be perfect for the Silurians. And so why not coexist? Just, you know, think of the societal and technological benefits. But of course, that doesn't happen. Now, as far as the Silurians go... Yes, there's, there is kind of a, an element of it that is obviously, you know, men in rubber suits. But there is something about their body language that is really effective here. The way that they just kind of judder and wiggle. And, you know, whenever the the third eye lights up, which they use to trigger some of their technology. But they also use as a self-defense mechanism that they can use to induce you know crippling amounts of pain in... You know any primates trying to make their lives hell um the sheer amount of physical effort that the actors in the Silurian suits you know really poured into their performance whenever that that third eye lit up man, that terrified me the first time I saw this, and for the record, I was i'm gonna say twelve or thirteen when I first saw this episode scared the hell out of me. And part of, part of it was that the first time I saw Doctor Who and the Silurians on TV was on PBS, uh, repeating it as part of the the package of John Pertwee episodes, and at that time it had not been colorized. That did not happen until about 1993 for the VHS release. It was still in black and white and very, very atmospheric and I think that really kind of added to the, the horror movie feel of it, quite frankly. Now, it's kind of interesting that nearly every time that the Silurians have reappeared in Doctor Who... And this we're not talking just about modern Doctor Who. We are talking about when they showed up again in 1984 in Warriors of the Deep, which was their only other classic series appearance... The show has a habit of trying valiantly to upgrade the Silurians' appearance, and yet it's never quite as effective as it was the first time they showed up. It, none of the none of the subsequent redesigns of the Silurians have had quite the same physicality, you know, that same. You know, almost overcaffeinated motion, like you know, oh, we're putting a lot of effort into moving around and using our third eye and the and the third eye disappeared after Doctor Who and the Silurians um well, it didn't disappear in Warriors of the Deep. It lit up in sync with the actor's voice, and so apparently somebody on the production team thought that it was like the earlights on a Dalek. And that it needed to be in sync with their voice, and it was not used as a story point as it was here, and then of course, by the time you get to the the modern series the the third eye has completely disappeared from the design i uh I guess the Silurians kept evolving and and they really shouldn't have been because this this to me is still their most effective appearance one thing that may have convinced some people that it was less than effective was the music by Kerry Blyton. Um, for, for whatever reason, the music was done with an instrument that sounded a lot like a kazoo. And it's, you know, it's, you have to understand they were trying to make it sound otherworldly, unfamiliar, Discomforting and alien and it does achieve that however i I think there are more modern connotations to that sound that um, have overtaken the use of that instrument in you know in a soundtrack context um Another thing of course that I like to point out is that. Uh, Captain Hawkins, who is the brigadier's right-hand man throughout this story, because we had not invented the character of Captain Mike Yates yet, Captain Hawkins is played by future Blake Seven star Paul Darrow, and he's very good at it. He's very recognizable as young Paul Darrow, and it's just sort of—it's sort of interesting to contemplate. You know, wow, what if uh, what if someone had said, "Oh, well, you know that Captain." You know, from that one story, you know, what if we kept him around instead of killing him off, you know, toward the end of Doctor Who and the Silurians? What if we kept him around and, say, we had Captain Hawkins and Sergeant Benton instead of Captain Yates and Sergeant Benton? Um, yeah, no, I, I can't really see that either. The Ambassadors of Death. Take it away, retrogram computer.
0: A British manned Mars mission has fallen silent. Its crew has been out of communication for months. A second manned space vehicle is launched to recover the first, but it too loses contact with Earth. Strange piercing signals are heard in Space Command on Earth, and the doctor quickly realizes that there may be messages from whoever took the astronauts, only to hear a similar coded reply being sent from somewhere on Earth moments later. The Brigadier is able to trace the source of the reply, and mobilizes unit. They find that the people who transmitted the reply are better organized, and better armed, than anyone suspected. Worse yet, they even have allies within Space Command who try to sabotage the Doctor's analysis of the original message. The recovery mission returns to Earth, but when the hatch is opened, the crew is nowhere to be found. Three astronauts did, in fact, arrive safely, but they aren't from Earth. When Liz Shaw is kidnapped and forced to experiment on the alien visitors, and the military suddenly becomes reluctant to aid the Brigadier, the Doctor finds himself racing against time to avert an interplanetary war sparked by one paranoid man.
1: There once was a time when I would have cited Doctor Who and the Silurians as the highlight of this season, or at least my favorite episode of the season. I think as I've gotten older, my allegiance has shifted more to the Ambassadors of Death, because this really is the most mature story of the season, in terms of storytelling and giving the audience credit for not being idiots. And also for trying to be you know, fairly fairly realistic. Um the space travel scenes are very well done, and they are about as close to realistic as the BBC could possibly have done in 1969, which, keep in mind, the season premiered in January of 1970, so John Pertwee's first season was filmed during 1969. Now, what makes Ambassadors of Death even more interesting, perhaps, than Doctor Who and the Silurians? There are nominally monsters. I mean, there are the aliens in the astronaut suits who return to Earth and are then manipulated by forces who really don't want Earth and Mars you know, or the the people of Earth and Mars to have a, a peaceful outcome. They don't want there to be diplomacy. They want there to be a reason for war, you know, for whatever reason. Um you know 1970 is not is not so far after world war 2 you know it's of course you had vietnam going on at the time but in britain that wasn't quite the feature on the landscape that it was in america but what you did have in britain at the time was you already had a generation of people who had been in world war 2 and were criticizing the generations coming up behind them as being soft and you know not forged in the fire of conflict or you know whatever whatever excuses those sort of people always roll out it seems like it's the same thing every time in ambassadors of death the monsters are actually us the monsters are those people who are you know peddling xenophobia and they're manipulating events in a very xenophobic way i mean this story has actually aged pretty well Looking at it from 50 years later, looking at it from 2020, I mean, you literally have some wide-eyed, sweaty, palmed guy screaming about, you know, there's caravans of aliens heading for the border. We have to stop them. Maybe not in those words, but I'm trying to put that in 2020 terms. And so this is very much a story that has something to say to us right now. Now, this is also a very interesting story for Liz Shaw, because she has her own whole story here that is not in the traditional companion sidekick story space. She does help the doctor, but she has, but she also has her own story going on where she is fighting to stay alive. She's been kidnapped by these people who want her scientific expertise turned toward their nefarious goals. They want her to figure out how to command the aliens in the spacesuits so that they can be used to basically as enforcers against those beings' own will. And really, it's her expertise is what is keeping her alive in some parts of the story. So it's kind of funny. The doctor and unit seem to be Uh, falling back on calling her Miss Shaw. Uh, At least the bad guys in this story remember that she is Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. Now, perhaps the biggest paradigm shift of the season's storytelling really arrives in the Ambassadors of Death. Um, The first cliffhanger of the season, Spearhead from Space Part 1, ends with, you know, oh my gosh, the doctor has been shot. There's a cliffhanger in The Ambassadors of Death where someone cocks a gun and points it right at the doctor's face. You know, there's there's none of this, you know, bloodless, oh, he's been shot from a distance. It's like, no, I'm going to shoot you in the face from point-blank range. These are not ray guns. These are not sci-fi weapons. They are perfectly normal handguns. So, again, dealing with, you know, the people are the monsters of the story. And, you know, we start to look at what enables them to be that. Now, this uh, tendency of the Pertwee era, and, and then later this carried on into Tom Baker's era, because, you know, thinking of thinking of stories like The Brain of Morbius, uh, Solon shoots his manservant, you know, at, in the gut with a gun. It's not a ray gun. You know, a bullet's been fired. It's made very clear. The sound effects sell it. You know, the blood on screen sells it. It's just a gun. This is a trend that would, no pun intended, backfire on Doctor Who later in the 70s because you would start to have Mary Whitehouse complaining endlessly about virtually everything that Doctor Who was doing. But the Ambassadors of Death has gobs of atmosphere on its side uh Dudley Simpson's music is gorgeous, and there's this great theme for unit but there is also there is also this theme for the aliens in the spacesuits whenever they are deployed to you know overrun some human opposition. ...at the behest of the bad guys, you know, and very much against the aliens' will. You know, they are being commanded. Um, It's an extremely haunting kind of hypnotic theme. Unlike anything I have heard Dudley Simpson do before or since. And this was really kind of... We were about at the peak of Dudley collaborating with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and this really is an instance where that was paying off huge dividends as far as the atmosphere of the show and doing exactly what incidental music is supposed to be doing and doing it very well i really love the ambassadors of death and it's um i don't think it really tops a lot of people's all-time favorite stories lists and it probably doesn't top too many people's list of favorite stories from this season But even at its, you know, fairly lengthy seven-part structure, which, you know, very much like the Silurians, at no point does that actually begin to sag. I mean, there is enough incident to carry a seven-part story throughout. But it's, you know, it's a lengthy watch if you're going to binge the whole seven-part story in one sitting. Have lots of popcorn handy. Just don't ask any alien astronauts to fetch it for you. So what could possibly be a fitting story to close off? A season that has really seen Doctor Who pivot into having something to say? Well, there's only one story left. Retrogram Computer, give us the synopsis for Inferno.
0: The doctor joins the brigadier and unit at a hazardous research site where Dr. Stallman plans to drill through the Earth's crust to tap its core as a new source of energy. The doctor is annoyed when Stallman rejects most of his experts' scientific advice. But this isn't enough to prevent the doctor from availing himself of power from Stallman's nuclear reactor for his own experiments, again attempting to restore the TARDIS to full function. During one such experiment, the TARDIS console shoots the Doctor sideways in time, depositing him in another dimension where Britain is a fascist state. In this alternate Earth, the Doctor can only watch in horror as Stallman's experiment progresses to the point where it destroys the world. The Doctor barely escapes, only to find that he may be too late from saving the Earth he knows from the same fate.
1: Now, if you can't tell, in some ways, Inferno is kind of Doctor Who doing mirror-mirror. This really seems to frequently crop up as the fan-favorite of the season, and yet in retrospect, and again, you know, having looked at this stuff with fresh eyes, you know, from a more advanced age than I've watched these stories in the past, um... Inferno is kind of, uh, I really rank it below Silurians and below, especially, Ambassadors. It's, um, it may be slightly above Spearhead from Space, or maybe below it. It's not really my favorite of the season. Now, one thing I will say is that what saves this, what, what keeps this from being You know, this is this is also a seven-part story, and it this is the one out of the season that kind of kind of drags just a little bit. Um, I'm not not perhaps the biggest fan of seven-part stories as a whole, but Silurians and ambassadors, at least, kind of they have enough incident to merit that length. Inferno probably could have still been done in four parts. But what keeps it entertaining and what keeps it in a space where you can take it seriously is that Nicholas Courtney and Carolyn John commit fully to embodying their fascist alter-egos as the brigade leader, and I forget what Liz Shaw's uh, alter-ego rank is, but she is not a nice lady. And there are elements here that are kind of scarily up-to-date. Um, at, at a point later in the story, in the later episodes, Sir Keith Gold, who's a character who exists on in both universes. You know, he's kind of a... Uh, he, he's a bureaucrat with some oversight power in the universe from which the Doctor comes from at the beginning of the story. In the fascist Inferno universe. He is um, kind of the same, but perhaps a bit more persistent than your typical public servant would be. And, you know, this displeases Dr. Stallman enough that Stallman and the brigade leader basically put out a hit on him. And uh, it reminds me of so many people who thought they were well ensconced in various positions in the American government for the past four years, and the moment that they actually do their jobs and fulfill the duties of the office instead of fulfilling their fealty to a particular leader, uh, suddenly they're out of a job. They're dismissed. It's kind of interesting here that um, we never saw the TARDIS console and spearhead from space, of course, because it was in the BBC scenery docks at the studios, and they couldn't shoot any of that at the studios. Uh, here they take the console out of the TARDIS, which I'm I'm always amused by the just the, the geometry of how that would work. Yeah, how do you get that huge mushroom-shaped six-sided console out of the police box doors? You know, they never show that happening, and, and no one has ever shown that happening, but it's amusing to think about all the same. Now the all seven parts of Inferno are directed mainly by Douglas Canfield. I believe he fell ill during production and some of it had to be handed off to another director. But Canfield drives most of it and he is right at home with the unit stories because he brings, you know, very much a an ex-military sensibility to it and You know, it has been said in many accounts of making Doctor Who stories with Camfield, you know, such as Terror of the Zygons, Inferno, and numerous others, uh, including the invasion, that he would effectively run his production unit like it was some sort of military brigade. Uh, You know, he would delegate some things and... At the same time, at all times, he expected his instructions to be followed to the letter. So he's a a, a very good choice to direct a story that really has you know a, lo- a lot of military action to it. Of course, Ambassadors of Death did as well. Um, however, whenever you bring Douglas Camfield into the picture, you have some baggage that follows him around, namely that he refused to work with Dudley Simpson. He would not engage the services of Simpson as the composer on his stories. He would insist on either having someone else come in or on using library tracks, which is what was done here. Uh, Some older Delia Derbyshire library tracks that she had done at the Radiophonic Workshop uh, were kind of needle-dropped into the story. Now, her music really... Brings a lot of atmosphere to it because it's very, it's very kind of musique concrete. It's it's very abstract, atonal and eerie. And you know, as such, it's you know it's perfect for such an unsettling story that suddenly, you know, rips the rug of normalcy out from under you. Uh, so, in that regard, it's it's kind of its own thing. Uh, I've heard numerous explanations over the years for Camfield. Not wanting to work with Dudley Simpson, ranging from a, at some point in the 60s when they did work together, uh, Camfield became outraged at how much Simpson was making as a composer versus how much Camfield was bringing in as director. Um, however, I've you know also heard that there are other things such as scheduling where you know they just could not see eye to eye and it was perhaps not as dramatic a conflict as that first. But you know, very persistent explanation led on the end of part six is a real shocker because you you know you have the kind of automatic garage door, which you know that was a that was a super futuristic thing for the doctor to have on his uh prefab building laboratory on Stallman's site but the the door opens, and you know there's lava bearing down on the alter egos of all of our heroes, not all of whom are terrible people. Some of them are, in fact, you know, even in the the alternate fascist universe, they're just trying to do their jobs. They're just trying to get through the day with their necks intact, you know, despite the regime that is in charge. And that ending of Part 6, that is a real shocker. Now, Even even though it's a very well-known piece of stock footage of of an erupting volcano uh, and I believe it's a I believe it's an eruption from Hawaii that happened in the 1950s that was filmed in color even though it's a very well-known piece of film that doesn't do anything to dilute the shock of it now let's talk about the ending of part 7 because the doctor and the brigadier kind of get into it uh, they have a a fairly strong disagreement. And the Doctor, you have to keep in mind, the Doctor has just come back from this alternate universe where he has been dealing with the Brigade Leader, who is the Brigadier turned up to 11. Um, and in some ways, he is still responding to the Brigadier as if the Brigadier is the Brigade Leader. And, you know, he doesn't need to be doing that, but he does. But the point is, you know, the the day that the Doctor has had... You know, over in fascist alternate universe, he is in no mood for the military mindset, and he very much lets Lethbridge Stewart know this. And yet, there is a there is a rapprochement, and they they come to uh, an understanding. You know, they each know, you know, each of them knows what about himself drives the other man nuts in having to deal with him all the time and you know there's kind of a there's kind of a chuckle about it and they walk off and that is the doctor and the brigadier's friendship in a nutshell however th- kind of the problem here is that that gets frozen in amber and that is their relationship for much of the rest of John Pertwee's tenure it really doesn't evolve much beyond this in fact i would say you're probably you're probably in the final Pertwee story, Planet of the Spiders, before you really are seeing some significant evolution of Lethbridge Stewart. Um, That character kind of gets frozen in amber here and is not allowed to evolve until a point at which clearly the writers understand that a new regime is going to be coming in, uh, a new regime which probably won't use unit as much as it has, as much as they have, and so they are doing some things with Lethbridge-Stewart in *Planet of the Spiders*, you know, which we're talking about a, a story that's in 1974. This is several years off, but they're doing things with Lethbridge-Stewart in that story because they know he's probably not going to be showing up again as much as he has during Pertwee's tenure. And so it's kind of a it's kind of neat to see it encapsulated so well here. And yet it kind of gets frozen there. But what the hell happened to Liz Shaw? The decision to swap companions happened between seasons. And you have to keep in mind that, in large part, Liz Shaw was devised by the current showrunners, but with Derek Sherwin still in the mix. And as such Barry Letts and Terence Dicks never really felt completely comfortable with the character of Dr. Elizabeth Shaw, you know, to the point that they practically refused to call her that in the show. And since they decided between seasons that, you know, they just weren't going to bring the character back, she doesn't get an exit. That's it. That's all for Liz Shaw. She does not get a farewell on screen. Now, the open ending uh is kind of a a gift to Big Finish many years later because Big Finish has been able to keep using the character of Liz Shaw um played by Carolyn John while she was still alive and I believe by her daughter now that Carolyn John has passed on so the character of Liz Shaw lives on, and she may yet if she hasn't already uh you know she may yet get her farewell story in audio form, which I hope will be something that lets her shine really brightly one last time and be Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. That would be neat. The following season we would wind up with Joe Grant as the the new assistant to the Doctor, as they began to be called uh, during Pertwee's era, especially since the Doctor was... Earthbound primarily, and stuck in this lab, and so, yes, you know that that's his lab assistant. That's the cover story. I like Joe. I I love Katie Manning to death, but Joe was very much the archetypal companion, and you know her tendency to kind of scream and run from things. It just seemed like an overcorrection away from Doctor Elizabeth Shaw. It you know, it seemed like. In one stroke, we were saying, "Okay, you know, we were much we were much more au fait with writing companions the way they were written in the nineteen sixties, and you know not someone more adult and more emancipated, a little bit disappointing there, and speaking of overcorrection, this season of Doctor Who okay, we've reached the end of the season, if you've ever seen the." the BBC show Doomwatch, which I highly recommend. It is, um the surviving episodes are on DVD, and I have that DVD set. Um I say surviving episodes because Doomwatch suffered from tape erasures in the 1970s BBC archives in very much the same way that Doctor Who itself did. Except we're talking about Doomwatch was made and transmitted at roughly the same time as this season of Doctor Who. And still something like half of the series is missing, which is extremely, extremely disappointing. This season and Doomwatch almost seem like they're of a piece. You know, it almost seems like you could have had some crossover event in the off-season, you know, where the Doctor and Liz and Unit, you know, have to join forces with, with Dr. Quist and Doomwatch and, you know, solve some big problem that requires all of their resources. That would have been cool. The next season of Doctor Who was very, very different, and even though it introduced the Master, who is, you know, this recurring villain, who is this insane fellow Time Lord from the Doctor's home planet, and may in fact be an old friend of the Doctor, which is a mythology that continues to evolve over time, even to this day, it seemed like the decision was made that even with, you know, a... uh, Basically, a serial killer running on the loose. We were going to lean hard into doing a very campy treatment of that with the 1971 season. Overviewing Season 7, the 1970 season of Doctor Who as a whole, let's talk about the camp factor. You could argue that the Hinchcliffe era, which we were talking the early seasons of Tom Baker, the early two, two and a half seasons there that Philip Hinchcliffe was producer and showrunner, took a similarly serious approach, which was then stepped on by the BBC. It seems like starting with this 1970 season, any attempt to decouple campiness from Doctor Who has met with a backlash at some level, either within the BBC or with the viewing public. Doctor Who and the Silurians and the Ambassadors of Death are, you know, very serious stories and. They are kind of a rare example of Doctor Who minus the camp. I think you get the camp back with Inferno because you have, you know, you have everyone being super serious about being their fascist alter egos, and it's, like I said, it's it's the mirror-mirror Doctor Who edition. Somewhere along the way, it's been decided that the campiness is baked into Doctor Who's recipe. But there's a question about. There's a valid question about whether or not super serious Doctor Who is actually better. Barry Letts and Terrence Dix later created a series that I've talked about in past installments of Retrogram called Moonbase 3, which Terrence Dix himself later said was, you know, utterly joyless and devoid of wonder and fun. So. Is it that. Barry and Terrence couldn't get away with writing Super Serious Doctor Who or that Doctor Who works against being done that seriously. Now, this 1970 season was also a a real rarity in that most newly regenerated Doctors very quickly run into major classic adversaries. And this is a tradition that extends both before and after john pertwee's tenure uh, patrick Troughton's first story as the doctor literally he ran into the daleks what are the odds and then two stories later he runs into the cybermen looking completely different from how they did in william hartnell's last story so this is not a this is not a new thing tom baker's first season boy you just tick off the list daleks cybermen sontarans and you know, there there were some new enemies as well, but um Colin Baker's first full season ran into the Cybermen and the Santorans and the Daleks. I mean, those seem to be the big three that you have to run into immediately. Not every doctor has done that, but you know, Christopher Eccleston, it's like they couldn't you know they couldn't not do the Daleks. They almost had to do without the Daleks in Eccleston's first season or Eccleston's only season, let me put it that way, because there was a dispute that had to be settled with the estate of Terry Nation before uh, they could do that first Dalek story, which was simply titled Dalek, in 2005. Um, Nation's estate was almost unwilling to let Doctor Who have the Daleks back, although they I, I don't know, I don't remember what the specifics of their objections were, because I would argue that outside of Big Finish, doctorless Daleks have not been a recipe for success. The Autons and Silurians both introduced in this season have continued into the the modern extension of the series. Uh, I, I really don't like calling it the old series and the new series, because if the 50th anniversary stories and everything since then have not made it obvious, it's all the same series. They just stopped making it for a while. It's still Doctor Who. There is no reboot. We are dealing with the same Doctor that we have always dealt with. Although, you know, how many Doctors there have been, you know, has now been turned into a question mark again by the uh, the latest season as I record this in 2020. The Autons and the Silurians have, you know, become fixtures in Doctor Who since then. Uh, The Autons literally kicked off the revival of the show in 2005. They were the main, the Autons and Nestines were the main enemies in Rose, the first episode featuring Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. Now there's an even rarer thing going on here in that they commissioned an outside writer, a freelance writer, to handle a regeneration story now that is usually something that is handled by the script editor, or you know, in the modern extension of the series, the showrunner. You, you know, you would have Russell Davies or Chris Chibnall or um, Stephen Moffat. I almost forgot Moffat's name there. You would have them write the regeneration story. And why is that? Uh, let me delve into a little bit of uh, a little bit of a story from another BBC show that explains that it's pure economics. Uh, Chris Boucher, the script editor and also frequently writer of Blake Seven, mentioned that he liked calling dibs on the first and last episodes of a season of Blake Seven because those were the most frequently rerun episodes, if the show was ever repeated. So it's purely a matter of economics. Um, you know, you write the introductory episode. Well, that's probably going to get rerun quite a bit. It's you know, especially in the modern binge watching era. And so you're going to be getting a residual payment as that as a, from that as a writer. And so that's why this, <laughs> that's why the showrunners tend to write the intro stories. Of course, these days, you know, now it's because the showrunners are trying to shape the story arc, but in the old days there was a purely economic reason for doing that. Season 7 is as much love as I'm heaping on it. It's not perfect. This is the last gasp of the seven-part story in Doctor Who, although Silurians and ambassadors really seem to work at seven parts in terms of pacing. Inferno, maybe not so much. Now the reason for the seven parters in this season was really cost. You know, you could build one major set like Space Control in in Ambassadors of Death, or the the drilling room in the you know the drilling control center in Inferno, and you could build that one set and amortize that out over seven episodes. And so you get, you know, this big flashy set, and you get to use it a lot because the story is really long. They seemed to try to be making a virtue of it, but even so, the Doctors exile to Earth turned out to be short-lived, and the stories would get progressively shorter as time wore on. Six-parters were still a thing all the way to the end of John Pertwee's era. John Pertwee's last story, in fact, Planet of Spiders, that I mentioned earlier, that was a six-parter. The six-parters ceased to be a thing toward the end of Tom Baker's era. The doctors exiled to Earth, you know. Although it was well-intentioned as a cost-cutting measure, so they wouldn't have to keep inventing alien planets and so on, um, it wasn't going to last long. It, in the nineteen seventy-one season, the TARDIS was allowed to go on a mission at the behest of the Time Lords to an alien planet. Barry Letts and Terrence Dicks realized that they couldn't sustain a completely Earth-bound version of Doctor Who. Part of it is the believability factor. Um, In the nineteen seventy season, the threat either happens in an alternate universe or everything is happening to Earth, which, you know, after a while would leave people curled up under their tables and their desks in a fetal position, because it seems like there's an alien invasion happening every week. Season 7 really seemed to be a conscious attempt to uncamp Doctor Who and make it a more serious show, and that works wonders for the jump-scare factor for the cliffhangers. Uh, There's stuff in here that's scarier than a lot of Doctor Who before or after, simply because everyone on screen is taking it very seriously. Contrast this to the absolute nadir of taking it, even remotely seriously, which is ten seasons later, season 17 in 1979, Tom Baker is getting away from the Daleks by, you know, hanging his hat on their eyes. Uh, Surely you run out of hats at some point to do that, right? So season seven was kind of a major decision point for Doctor Who. You know, we're trying to be scary, we're trying to be serious, but how scary and how serious do we want it to be? How much scarier would the master have been if the show leaned into the implications of him being this cold-blooded mass murderer with access to advanced technology instead of making him, you know, almost Skeletor-esque, you know, kind of a literally mustache-twirling villain that you hate but also kind of love? And any attempt to steer Doctor Who into more serious waters has met with resistance since this 1970 season. Now, we talked about the Hinchcliffe-era or the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, because you also have to take into account Robert Holmes, um, writer of Spearhead in Space, was, you know, he was later made script editor of the show. He basically took over from Terence Dix, and his proclivities toward gothic horror, you know, very much matched up with what Philip Hinchcliffe wanted to do as the showrunner. The resulting controversy from that era, however, got Hinchcliffe reassigned to a different series— and ushered in a whole new level of the antithesis of taking the show's threats seriously. Because as the Graham Williams era, with Graham Williams replacing Hinchcliffe as the showrunner wore on, you know, through the Tom Baker era, the show became campier and campier until it was almost a, at points, kind of a, a wink and a nod toward the camera comedy. For Tom Baker's last season, John Nathan Turner was the incoming showrunner, and he tried to bring some gravity back to it and tried to sustain that through Peter Davison's first season. And, you know, he tried again when Colin Baker became the doctor, although season 22, uh, you know, talking about Colin Baker's first season, you know, met with a lot of outcries about violence, but by that point, there were elements of, you know, costuming, <laughs> say no more, costuming and casting that were keeping keeping everything campy, no matter how violent they made it, and so it's really kind of almost schizophrenic in tone, even though they are trying to tackle some serious issues, and tell some serious stories, and you know, show that violence has consequences, but... <sighs> You can really only show so many consequences to that violence under the blinding studio lights of the late 80s BBC, and it's a tug of war that carries on to this day. I'd say that the most recent attempt to kind of uncamp Doctor Who would be Series 11 of the modern extension of the series, um, Jodie Whittaker's first season. This met with a lot of resistance. It's kind of funny. I loved the the history based. Episodes in Jodie Whittaker's first season. I loved the Rosa Parks episode. I loved the Partition of India episode. And yet I hear other people complaining about those very loudly. Although it seems like really a lot of the pushback against the Jodie Whittaker era with Chris Chibnall as showrunner has been along the lines of complaints about political correctness, even though it was just fine for Peter Capaldi's doctor to punch... Someone in the face for trying to put Bill Potts in her place in an overly racist way just a season earlier. That was okay. You know, white savior moment with a, you know, middle-aged white actor? Fine. Um, you know, have a have a woman in the same kind of situation? Oh, well, that's political correctness. Pfft, B.S. I, there's been a tiring amount of whining about the fact that the Doctor has changed genders in the modern series, when in fact there have been some amazingly good stories... That have come out of this current era, you know, again, because we're trying to take it somewhat seriously. But it seemed like the decision was made after this 1970 season of Doctor Who that apparently the show was always going to have to be at least a little bit camp. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music is composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons, and you can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. I may also have thrown in just a little bit of Dudley Simpson. Fair warning. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters, folks like Kevin, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, and Ferg. That's like five people. Holy cow. If you love Retrogram, join them as a patron or support us another way. Every little bit helps keep thelogbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. Find out more at patreon.com slash thelogbook, or if you want to help out without the ongoing commitment, which I totally understand, throw a coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains, Yes, shower curtains and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, including new designs on everything from t-shirts and mugs to face masks and even socks. Or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. If you want to catch up on the latest season of Star Trek Discovery or just watch Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Lower Decks again, and that's totally cool, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links, and if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps The Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. If you can't remember those links, that's cool too. Visit the show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram, and you can find them all there. A huge thanks to everyone who has kept Retrogram and me afloat in 2020. Let's all escape this year alive and make sure that the new year is nothing like it, and we can all agree to write off 2020 as a bad sci-fi plot that tried to stuff way too many disasters into just one story. No one's ever going to believe that. You know what you can believe, though? Retrogram will return, and Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.